Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 12th of October, as we record. Today, we are talking spoons, shoes and saving for retirement. Weatherspoons reported full-year results last Friday, so we're taking one of our not-infrequent looks at the pub trade this afternoon. Our cover feature this week is on what, for many investors, is the ultimate goal, how to save enough for the later years of life. And we'll be exploring how investors can best prepare for that and how they can try to ensure they avoid having not just too little, but even, dare I say it, perhaps too much Finally, we will be discussing this week's big US IPO, that of footwear brand Birkenstock, as well as looking at the IPO market in general and briefly touching on UK fundraising activity this week in the form of Big Yellow Group's placing. Joining me to discuss all this are over the line Mark Robinson. How's it going, Dan? Very well, thank you, Mark. Julian Hoffman is also over the line. Hi, Julian. Hello, Dan. In the studio, Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. And also, we may be seeking the advice of our producer, Maddie Apthorpe. Right, let's begin with Weatherspoons, though. Full year figures, as I say, a few days ago. Uh, Mark, you covered the figures for us. How did they look? I did. It's um, it's always a pleasant diversion, Weatherspoons results, because obviously uh, Tim Martin, the, the principal there, is quite outspoken on any number of topics. He would have been pretty pleased with this latest showing anyway. The figures in terms of volumes and profitability are now in excess of their uh, pre-pandemic comparators, which is uh, obviously very good news. And he also uh, made some of his usual comments in relation to uh, government policy covering the license trade, which we'll probably get onto in a minute. Uh, like for like sales compared to the pre-pandemic level were up by just under 10%. And that's compared to the first nine weeks to the 2nd of October uh, of 2022. So that indicates that current trading is going pretty well. And so it's definitely been building a bit of momentum there too. Although he did allude to uh, certain uh, external problems which uh, have weighed upon uh, performance or, in fact, uh, the way that the the operating um, focus of the business too. So I think shareholders, by and large, will be uh, pretty pleased with with the metrics uh, going forward. And uh, we can say with a a degree of caution that matters appear to be back on track for the, the pubco. Yeah, this is kind of the story of the year for for Weatherspoons and some other companies too. In the you know the the doomiest predictions have been avoided, or perhaps you know Weatherspoons as a cost effective place to have a drink is a beneficiary of those. But you know it's been a couple of times this year. It's been talking about like like sales being very strong and some of the headwinds from previous years and coming through this year too in terms of inflation and and labour costs are perhaps dimming slightly. There is, there is the debt issue still. Obviously, it did take on uh, a lot more borrowings during the pandemic. How, how do you see that part of the balance sheet at the moment? Certainly, you get the impression that this is one of the chief focus areas uh, for Tim Martin and his team there as well. It's uh, it's come down appreciably, really. It's decreased by $163 million since January 2020. Now stands at uh, 642 million, ex IFRS 16. I made the point that the pandemic may have 
acted as a, a catalyst on this front as well in terms of clearing underperforming assets from the group itself. And uh, it's uh, hived off a few non-performing pubs during the period, about 13 or so, and it's closed down four and terminated the leases on uh, another 14 sites as well. So th this rationalization uh, program again, is linked to, to the determination to drive those debt levels down. I mean, Weatherspoons was by no means an outlier on, on the debt front. The, the industry as a whole has struggled in, in recent years by this, and so we've seen some uh, consolidation of pubcos abroad too. But you definitely get the impression that that's one of the, the chief focuses of the company now. And on that front, uh, Tim Martin, one of the things he, he spoke about was in relation to the, the downsizing of the estate. I mean, he also spoke about some of his usual bugbears. I think he said that the biggest threat facing the hospitality industry is, not was, but is the possibility of more lockdowns, which feels like a slightly uh, dated argument at this point. Well, let's hope so, but maybe he knows something we don't. But the other one of the other things he spoke about was the way in which you know, the estate is valued and the way in which some of the pubs that, they've been selling off and maybe some of the ones they haven't as well you know those valuations you know accounting rules are factoring in low profitability in the aftermath of the pandemic as opposed to the many years before that of much better trading so i suppose you could see it either way really what, what's your view on 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 you know those those accounting rules does he have a point here i i don't know the, the sort of technical aspects of this it was actually news to me but i think you know he has He's been pretty consistent in the past when um, he looks at the way that the license trade uh, has been treated from, say, a, a tax uh, perspective compared to the supermarkets and off licenses and, and so on. And th and this is a slightly different angle, but I, I think he he certainly does have a point. And and one of the difficulties that arise from this is you would imagine that the uh, valuation levels have an indirect impact on the group's cost of capital as well. So it, it's unsurprising that, that he, he raised the issue. Yeah, but, I've, I've been looking at this in a bit of depth, actually. Sorry to come in there. That's fine. Um, right? But um, there is a difference between IFRS 16 and 17, where the, the way you count the, the leases on those particular types of pubs, if they're in, if the valuation goes down, um, you have to hold them longer on the balance sheet rather than booking them through the income statement. Uh, and it prevents Weatherspoons um, in this context from benefiting the PPT line because as the as the lease matures if the pub's uh, value hasn't been impaired you can book it in a certain way and that helps the pbt i mean that's partly why he's complaining about it i think as you said you know the valuation goes down it's obviously a, a strain on the covenants for the for the company's debt so yeah i you know it, it's it's an anomaly but it's probably just one that, that uh, they have to to uh, to put up with because i mean however you do it it's going to affect one part of the council or the other i think um you know, if he if he does it under IFRS 16, then that that goes straight to the that affects the the income statement. So it's it's a it's an intensely complicated debate. I mean, he tends to rationalise it down in that way, but I can't see how they how you would do it any better. I don't think. Yeah, I suppose as well there is a the fact that you know this is a fact of life when it comes to selling assets at a time where you know things haven't been going so well in certain cases. You know, sometimes you do have to crystallise losses uh, unfortunately at lower levels i think they say you know well i mean certainly uh, doesn't want to crystallize his losses i mean that's yeah they've, they've they've had to effectively get rid of 30 percent of the estate 
through one method or another. And uh, one of them, interestingly, is converting the pubs to wholly owned. So if you if you buy out the lease and you own it yourself, uh, you don't have that problem with the uh, the valuation, uh, the the lease valuation affecting the the PBT. So they they have been sort of a bit more clever than than just moaning about it in terms of dealing with the problem. Yeah. And I should say, yeah, in spite of what I just said, you know, some of this will relate to sales when, you know, that's a fact of life if you if you sell at a, a difficult time. But but it does also, as you say, relate to the value on the books as well. You know, the assets that they haven't been selling as well are also uh, marked down. So so that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, one other thing I wanted to uh, discuss was just a slightly more uh simplistic part of the balance sheet was was going back to those revenues and looking at the revenue growth and food has been driving a lot of that revenue growth in uh recent months it seems which is you know quite distinct from uh, how we consider weatherspoons as you know a wet trade pub is this a change we or you kind of anticipate mark or julian increasing going forward do we think food is going to be a bigger part of the strategy or or is this an anomaly if you, if you look at the, the figures this rate it's actually quite uh, striking the proportional increase in uh, food revenues compared to the wet sales as well and i think looking at, uh, across the industry the margins are narrowing on uh, sales of uh, beer wines and spirits whereas they've expanded to uh, a large degree with food sales as well and I'd probably want to have a look at the marginal rate there for both of those parts of the business. Actually, when we, when we were talking about Tim Martin sort of highlighting the disparities between the pubcos and the supermarkets, he did make a point as well that supermarkets pay virtually no VAT in respect to their food sales, whereas uh, pubs can pay up to about 20%. I think there's there's been a, a general trend towards um, food sales in pubs anyway, um, because it's... Uh, the numbers are closing down and it's a way to get punters in the door too. The only thing I, I would say with Weatherspoons, I mean, it, it has a reputation for value for money too. But I think the marginal rate on food would be interesting to uh, to evaluate. Yeah, I mean, it may be a case of, you know, the market meeting Weatherspoons perhaps, Martin, in that you know, they've always had a food offer in, in certain pubs. It's always been good value. And now when people are looking for that value, perhaps more than ever, then those food offers become relatively more attractive. Yeah, I get, I get a lot of their offering is is made off premises as well. It's a centralised food service. You don't get a, have to get a whole brigade in there, and, and the expensive cost linked with that. So, but you know, there's a certain portion of people with stretch household budgets and discretionary incomes going down. That uh, it's just the ticket, really. Yeah. The final point on Weatherspoons. The results did see a bit of profit taking in the shares after what has been a very good run from from the lows this year. How do we see the the value there and the valuation case for the shares? The forward rating is uh, so at the time of the results themselves was 17 times. So, I mean, it's not actually screaming value in terms of the relationship to peers in the market. In fact, it's historical level levels too. But there was um, a technical sing signal we identified in uh, March of this year, which at the very least would might suggest that the share prices are uh, bottom out during that uh, that first quarter so i think it's steady as she goes at the moment it doesn't uh, it's not screaming out value and there's still sort of major question marks uh, over the sector as a whole also, um, i mean weather spins is also historically expensive isn't it by by the standards of the rest of the rest of the pub groups i mean 
uh, and just uh, that just reflects the way that they've been leveraged over the years. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I agree with Mark. I wouldn't say that you would you would dive in now and expect to make uh, a huge amount of money out of it. it it'll be it'll be what happens, I guess, in the next six months if they if they fall back again. Then that might be a buy signal. The issue, I suppose, the other thing with, with Weatherspoons is you know the the rest of the year they have said the first few weeks through to October trading again has been ahead like for like sales been pretty good but we're coming into some tougher comparators now I think and of course as cost of living and interest rate increases continue to bear down that will be something that is very closely uh, closely watched Alex I don't know if you have any thoughts on on Weatherspoon's evaluation case the business or any new thoughts yeah I'm probably more pessimistic I think than the steady issue goes argument though I mean Weatherspoon's was a terrific uh, investment for all of the last decade. So I think the total return was about 360% for shareholders. I, I mean, the issue now is I, well, I, I don't quite see where where the growth story comes from. Yes, they have a, a, a very defined proposition, but they are trimming the estate. It actually peaked in in 2015, and they've you know they're obviously trimming trimming the fat, I suppose, in 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 the years up until the pandemic. So the so just focusing on the the highest return part of the estate, but they've done the all day food thing. I, I don't see what the the next string they can add to their bow, other than you know hope for like for like sales to tick up a little bit more. I mean they they, they don't seem to be in growth mode. So um, I think yeah, with all the other pressures, the business rates point that that Tim Martin makes a lot. I think is you know he's got some he's got some fair points there. But to me, the the biggest potential for the the investment case is some relief on the on the way the business is is taxed. And yeah, that doesn't seem like a, a real business strategy to me. It just um it it, it seems like it, it's going to be a lot harder for the the coming years to me uh, for Weatherspoons to um get a, a strong return on equity. Well, it takes two to make a market, so we will uh, we will see how the shares fare in the the months ahead, and doubtless we will return to them on this show as well at some point in the future. Uh, Alex, we're going to stay with you now, though, because we're on to our cover story of the week, which you have written, and it is about the big, if not the biggest question of how to save enough for retirement. Uh, as I said at the top, clearly for a lot of investors, this will be the ultimate goal, but can you say and and you know it's a topic which we discuss a lot and and you know lots of people of our ilk will also discuss and think about it a lot but but can you say a bit about what your your thinking was as you set out to write the piece what you wanted to kind of highlight here yeah completely what you're saying so in a sense everything we write really in the magazine is connected to the question of having enough in retirement most people invest and and seek to take charge of their um, their personal finances because they're thinking about the future and for most people the future means at some point retirement so there's nothing new uh, really in approaching this question but what has arguably changed over the last few years is the urgency of this question for lots of people so since the pandemic we know that a lot more working age people are retiring earlier sometimes because they can sometimes without a clear idea of, of whether it will be affordable and then at the same time there's an increasing interest among people perhaps toward the um, you know traditionally what we'd consider the, the beginning of their careers there's in increasing interest in the idea of financial independence so you know and, and this kind of it, it bears out in, in what's happened in the world of investing over the last 30 years if you've been a diligent investor put as much as you you can into passive funds minimize your outgoings and focused on uh, enhancing your your earnings potential then lots of people have sort of connected those 
three dots and realise you can bring retirement forward from, you know, 65 to, to 50 or even younger and then live off the passive income. But yeah, but just having a goal like independence, uh, financial independence alone isn't enough. And I suppose the purpose for trying to beginning to answer this question or getting readers uh, to start to think about it if they haven't already is to to, to sort of highlight some of the importance of having a plan. Um, uh, and, it, you know, if you're serious about your retirement, that's, you know, having having a plan, not just a goal, is, is a sentiment which is, I think, important to instill. And setting those goals is the next big question, yeah. of course. How to do it, how to make them achievable, how you should think about goals and plans, of course, you know, creating that plan. I've immediately referred back to goals after you've just said yeah. the plan is more important. But, you know, how how do you go about creating those kind of things? Well, no, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think the plan, a goal is, is more important. I think that the fact is you, they have to go sort of hand in glove, mm. without, I suppose, without being too theoretical about it. I mean, you, uh, you know, there's a, the, the Dwight Eisenhower quote that plans are worthless, but planning is everything. So the starting point, one of the starting points is, is recognising that having a financial plan is uh, is itself the, the the starting point and knowing what you can put in um having having a sense of your your sort of your monthly outgoings and a rough idea and it obviously depends on where you are in your investing journey um, having a rough idea of when you might want to retire by uh, trying to work out some of these questions even if even if you're just sketching out an idea uh these are the, these are the starting points for putting together a financial plan the goal at the same you know at the same time you can set a goal alongside the plan um uh, and one will inform the other you know some some financial plans obviously aren't going to get you to certain goals but at the same time you know certain certain goals may be uh you, you may have actually pushed out a lot further than what might be achievable in, in other words you might not realize that you know through the power of compounding and sticking to a plan what you might be able to achieve in terms of your retirement so yeah it's a slightly washy way of, of, of saying that just having a goal isn't enough uh having a plan uh, on its own isn't enough it's, it's about trying to sort of marry the two together um uh, and and working out what you can do and being happy with with that plan mm. we'll, we'll come to the the happiness in a moment yeah. but uh there are some concrete ways, of course, to to look at these things, or at least to start thinking about these questions. We have a series of you know points, key points to remember in the article. We we also touch on some of the the calculators you can use, pensions calculators, things like that, including our own, which is now uh, available on the IC website. But there are others available too, and and they can they can show you a lot really with some with some basic assumptions put in there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, fortune would have it, we've we just published our own pensions calculator which is really good the way these calculators work is they ask for a few basic bits of information it might be quite hard as i've sort of touched on in working out what those inputs are so what is your retirement age if you're 25 really really hard to know the answer to that to that question an easier an easier question you might be able to answer is how much can i put away um each month or how much am i paying into my pension that's something you might know then you can add to those uh, questions the inputs on, on, on terms of um, expected return. So for that, lots of financial planners and advisors would say to refer to historical trends. For example, what have equities done over over the last fifty years? What have bonds done? And to tr- and to try and input some of these um, uh, these assumptions about what 
is often long, long swathes of time. So we're talking decades really here and, and how money builds up over a very long time and try and get a, a rough ballpark of uh, what kind of number that's going to get you to and, and what that might mean for your retirement income. So in terms of practical terms, there are the, the calculators online. There are also lots of, if you, if you look online, there are lots of basic cash flow forecasting spreadsheets, which will, which will help you to also understand what your needs might be in, in retirement. Uh, and some of the things you might have not thought about in terms of the timing of cash flow needs throughout your retirement, which is a really important thing. So some some advisors, well, lots of advisors, um, point to the fact that in the, the first few years of retirement, your cash, uh, you know, month-to-month cash needs might be quite a lot higher because the things you're, 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 you'd like to do uh, in the early stage of retirement that you might not be able to do later on and how that adjusts over time. So, yeah, whether you use calculators or spreadsheets um, that that uh, you can find online or whether you know you're comfortable building your own these are some of the kind of the, the starting blocks to think about um uh, when trying to answer this question of of modeling your cash flows in the future and aside from these uh, you know these inputs and the starting points and aside from the endpoints as well i suppose we can boil it down to a question of the word you mentioned earlier you know happiness being happy in retirement and that and that perhaps does lead us to think more philosophically dare I say about the question in terms of what you want but also what you expect to be doing in retirement how you expect to be living your life in many ways because I think Chris Dillo formerly of this parish for example is always very big on uh, people you know making sure that that they do enjoy themselves and you don't get too caught up in thinking I must reach this goal uh, and therefore you know you may end up in some ways notwithstanding the wish to leave money to relatives, children, grandchildren, with having too much because you're too focused on that end point. You're not, you're not actually enjoying the moment now or the moment in retirement. Yeah, it's, it's you know, which, which makes this whole question harder to answer, but it's, it is also the, you know, the really important question to answer. You know, when we talk about a financial independence, um, I think one financial planner said to me that, you know, in, in a sense, anyone... I don't know if anyone can, but lots of people can retire tomorrow if they're prepared to um, uh, forego or sacrifice a certain uh, lifestyle. So it's all about um, it's all about striking um, a balance, I suppose, between uh, a happy life pre-retirement and you know being able to live comfortably when you you are retired. You know, I talked about the financial independence movement a little bit earlier i mean it's most extreme the idea to sort of maximize your earnings utility and and save as much as you can to build your wealth up at the fastest rate as soon as possible you know requires some real sacrifices so you know it's most extreme you know the the fire movement as it's sort of known You, you you get people talking about geographic arbitrage where can i you know can i do a job where i am in one of the uh cheapest places to live on earth whilst earning a, a western or developed world um uh, salary you know forego foregoing decisions around uh, having a family because you know that's obvious an, an obvious cost um and to some such privations really sort of defeat the purpose of having a secure retirement um so yeah the the, the question of happiness you know has to be threaded throughout the goal and the plan itself um Otherwise, it's you know it's it's fairly meaningless, and it's also important to you know this this is a uh, it, it it can it can often just be boiled down to the numbers and putting your life in a spreadsheet can almost reduce all all the really important things about life 
it can almost exclude those ex as externalities when when really the the point should be to enable um happiness not to uh not to sort of strip it out of the equation indeed consider the lily <laughs> consider the lily yeah well, as I say, that is our cover story this week, and there is lots of food for thought in there. There are guides, there are tips and suggestions in there, so do pick that up and have a look if this is a subject on which you wish to know a little bit more. We are going to turn, though, to our final section of the show. We are beginning that by talking about Birkenstock, the German sandal maker listing in the US. Uh, it did so uh, earlier this week. Shares dropped, as tends to be the case with IPOs, a decent way on the first day of trading yesterday afternoon, 10% or so, I think. Uh, Alex, we'll start with you again, uh, because I think what you did earlier this week, draw the comparison between Birkenstock and Dr. Martin, just in terms of you know how the, the companies are coming to market and how they might look. Gemma uh, Slingo drew the comparison uh, um, much more clearly in, in a piece she's written for the magazine this, this week. Yeah, I mean, the parallels are very interesting. So Dr. Martin's floated at the beginning of 2021. Um, obviously, uh, capital markets were in a very different state then um but also excitement for uh, I, I suppose recognizable brands coming to market was uh, at a sort of fever pitch then with birkenstock now you obviously have a, a brand kind of at the the apex of its popularity it's seen very very strong growth in recent years and there is like dr martin's a very clear investment story to sell here that's partly predicated on the margins. So, um, I think Jem pointed out that the uh, the Birkenstock's mar margins, you know, look quite roomy at thirty five percent last year, and that was also the case with Dr. Martin's. What it what has since transpired, and 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 Dr. Martin shares are down about seventy percent since they listed, is that what looked very like a very nice um, high margin story at the time. Um, has since been shown to be because there was not enough investment in the business and, you know, costs have been a lot harder to handle since then. And I suppose, you know, we can sort of come on to talking a bit more about the brand, but um, there's obviously this this question, in, particularly when it's uh, previously been in private equity ownership, um, which Dr. Martins was as, as well, about sellers picking a peak moment, moment in the cycle to to sell out because, Brands are quite ephemeral, and um, you know, striking while the iron's hot is a, a, is transparently a sensible thing um, for the sellers to have done. The question, obviously, for investors who are the potential buyers of the shares, are: Will this be a, a sensible business to own, or have they have they kind of been sold um, a story that is uh, uh, that is peaking? So, yeah, those those are some of the parallels with the the UK market that um, that are quite clear, really. The brand is an interesting thing. I mean, speaking personally, I don't know too much about Birkenstock other than I see them occasionally around my house. And I know, you know, they are a well-known brand. The The IPO makes a lot of uh, uh, bold claims. It says it's a brand that transcends geography, gender, age and income uh, and fulfills a primal need of all human beings. So, you know, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but I want to bring in uh, our producer, Maddie, perhaps to give a... Uh, Gen X viewpoint on Birkenstock, you know, is this something that uh, is really attracting the attention of all age ranges as a, as Birkenstock claims? Because ultimately, as well, I could be wrong, but I believe, you know, it is a sandal or a footbed, as Birkenstock likes to call it, and they all seem quite similar to one another. I don't know how much demand there is out there for this kind of thing, Maddie. I think 
the demand is really, really quite high. Where I live in London, uh, Hoxton kind of area, you go out and you, you know, you see at least like 10 pairs in five minutes. So they really are all over the place at the moment. And I think with the younger generations, that probably comes from social media. They're huge on Instagram, they're huge on Pinterest, they're huge on TikTok, and worn by influencers of all different kind of subcultures in a way. So they're really reaching like a big audience in that respect. But mm. I think maybe with the the older generations, they were, you know, wearing Birkenstocks in like the 60s, 70s when they first came about and they were like the hippie kind of generation. So maybe they're tapping back into that or they just know that they're popular again and they want to be cool with the kids. I'm not too sure. But I think another part of maybe their popularity can come from, obviously in COVID, there was a lot of comfort wear that got really big. No one had to really dress up or do anything like that. Mm. And, you know, you have that with athletes still. You still see people walking around in like leggings and yoga pants and stuff. So I think Birkenstocks are kind of like similar to that in a way. You can be comfortable, but it's not a bad thing anymore. Mm. Um, and then obviously you have Barbie, like they were featured in Barbie pretty heavily. They were made a joke of, but I think that obviously like brought their popularity up again as well. I did see them in Barbie, yeah, that was a, you know, that even got onto my uh, cultural radar. Uh, that's interesting, thank you. Maybe taking uh, the other side, Mark and Julian, are you, uh, <laughs> are you uh, Birkenstocks wearers, fans as a brand? I can remember Birkenstocks heavily from my childhood in Germany, uh, where there are whole shops devoted to their sale i mean literally like supermarket size things um and i always associate them with a kind of massage therapists who seem to wear them <laughs> wow um but apart from that um they are they do have a cultural impact in the sense that a lot of people copy them so you can buy i was telling maddie this uh, before the broadcast that so you can buy a knockoff uh, copy from lidl for about 20 pounds which are perfectly serviceable and uh, which I recently wore all around Mallorca. So um, they do have a cultural impact. So maybe maybe the OPO has is, is riding some kind of uh, kind of wave, but uh, we inevitably wait for the you know, the disappointment 12 months from now when the stock price is probably cratered. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I, I can't really c commit to any anything here, Dan. I mean, I'm, I'm of that generation which would normally uh, team them up with some uh, ankle socks uh, paddle well, around uh, some the, great Yarmouth that type of thing the socks and sandals is a famed uh, stylistic <laughs> duo isn't it so we, yes. we shouldn't be uh, speaking out against that either but uh, Julian I suppose that is a well that is a, a good point as well you know all brands need to be aware of the private label cheaper uh, imitators don't they let's turn though to IPOs in general though because we have seen a few this year they, they haven't you know after a long wait they haven't done that well we're talking about Arm, Birkenstock, uh, you know, companies companies like that, Instacart as well uh, the other week. Nonetheless, I think, you know, analysts seem to be thinking that this is hopefully a sign of things thawing out, hopefully a sign that things are going to get a bit better in terms of more companies coming to market, you know, it just takes a few. And as long as they don't do absolutely horrifically, then that actually encourages more. Uh do we think this is a good sign for market confidence overall? Uh, and, you know, again, this is in the US, but there is a ripple effect typically to the UK as well. So this could be a sign of better times to come. I'm not sure. Uh, one swallow doesn't the summer make, I think, is the saying. Um, it, it's probably too early to tell, but there are there is a lot of chatter now that the fourth quarter of this year should see some movement on uh, on IPOs. If, if, not, if nothing else, it's because um, a lot of financial institutions, entities have uh, restructured their um, their capital allocations. So, you know, that process is now finished and you, you tend to find that when we're in that situation, people turn to IPOs 
basically because they have the time to do it. So there could be a there could be a direct correlation with that. To conclude, in the UK we haven't had an IPO this, or certainly not a high profile IPO this week, but we have had a, a placing and one one that comes uh, shortly after we perhaps cast doubt on, on this very company being able to do that. Because last week we were talking about Big Yellow Group, the self-storage company, and the difficulty uh, nowadays when you're a company, when you're a REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust, you know, trading on a discount. Previously, they've been able to issue shares on a premium. At a discount, it's quite difficult to do so. Nonetheless, Alex, they have come out and done so uh, in a way that raises, you know, there are positives and negatives there, really. Yeah. So, um, yeah, don't listen to anything I say, basically, on the podcast is the lesson. But the, the um, so last year, we, we pointed out that this was a this is a company which had a terrific track record. I think the total return in the decade to the end of twenty twenty one was was something like twenty five percent on average a year. Um, and in the final leg of that rally, they in in twenty twenty one they did a, a share placing where they raised one hundred million pounds at forty five a forty five percent premium to NAV. Um, uh, and today, or as of last week, the the, the stock was trading closer to a twenty five percent discount to NAV. They raised money at, at not much above that, uh, uh, nine hundred forty five. Uh, pence a share they raised 110 million so it tells you two things that one it's it's a real positive i, th- I think in a way for for the long-term investment case because it, the market is it, the the market is really moribund when it comes to uh, fundraising this year and probably the worst year since the financial crisis they've obviously had to concede that that given the facts have changed over the last couple of years they've had to make some sort of sacrifice when it comes to the share price and dilute shareholders a little bit so it resets expectations um but they have managed to raise money and sort of to tie it back to the the ipo discussion before you know so, so much of of um fundraising in markets is about sentiment and optimism and these could be quite fragile things really so the fact that they have been able to raise you know a good slug of capital to grow the business long term is is obviously a, a, a positive but you know, it's it's come at quite a price. Um, Indeed. For, uh, well, on that investors. note, we are going to conclude. We have run out of time, unfortunately. But thank you very much to Alex, to Mark, to Julian and to Maddie. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Market Show. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.